welcome to the Perspectives podcast powered by Persona. I'm Adrian Jones and I am your host and I'm actually incredibly excited to talk to you all today. So welcome actually to the inaugural episode of the Perspectives podcast where we embark on a journey to expand our horizons in both life and in technology. Our mission actually is to dive deep into facts, comprehend diverse viewpoints and extract valuable lessons from each narrative whether it's centered around latest tech innovations or life's intricate tapestry that we weave. So join us as we explore new perspectives uh, and we grow together in understanding and in knowledge. So welcome to you all and welcome to our also our first uh, ever guest, our esteemed guest on the podcast, who really actually needs no introduction. Jos Capito is a respected figure in the automotive and motorsport industries with a career spanning over three decades. Throughout his career, he's held numerous prominent positions in various motorsport and automotive companies, including CEO of the Williams Formula One team, managing director of McLaren Racing, and also was the CEO of Volkswagen Motorsport team, as well as Porsche Motorsport, and also the director of Ford Motorsport in Europe. He's won too many things to mention on this podcast, but he's won multiple championships across many uh, across his whole career in many different racing categories. Also, Jost is known for his strategic vision, his leadership abilities, and he has a proven track record of driving innovation and business development. And he's also our senior advisor at Persona, which we are so very grateful and proud to have you with us today. Jost, welcome to the podcast. It is so great to see you. You look well. What have you been up to? Yeah. So thanks, Adrian, for inviting me for your first podcast. It's a big honor for me and welcome all the listeners and viewers to the podcast. Uh, it's a great honor for me to be here. Um, so what I'm doing now, I officially retired when uh, I left Williams. And uh, I'm, I was approached by a couple of companies, especially tech startups, for to advise. And I'm very honored to be able to advise Persona, and especially in the in their product TrackSwift, <clears throat> that is great use uh, and for Formula One teams already, and also going into other sports, and that's really fantastic to be part of your team. Great. Well, we're honoured, actually, really honoured to have you with us, and you know the journey over the last year working with you has been fantastic. So thank you very much, Jos, for joining again today, and also the support you give us every day. When you look at your career, Jos, you've won so much in your life from World Rally Championships to what you've been doing in Formula One. Give us your, your insight to what winning means sort of to you. For me, winning means everything. And that's what uh, and I'm sure that came from, from my bringing up as a child, as uh, when I was, I think was not even 10. I got the present from my father, like a small box that you could put on the shelf. And it was written on the second is the first loser. And uh, that's how I was brought up. And uh, we'll say winning is everything, but it's also you have to become a good loser. If you are not winning, you just make has to make you try harder. And uh, that's also from my first racing experience where I had to learn that and where I learned it easily. Because when I started racing in enduro and motocross racing, I was part of the local motorsports club. And we had around 30 
guys who were racing in enduro and motocross and they were my good friends and best friends and on the weekend i had to race them and they were my fiercest competitors so there i learned that uh, you have to divide between what's your real life and what is racing in racing you have fierce competitors you are fighting but uh, can be friends and so you spend time in your free time with them and you enjoy being with them and they are really good friends but on the track it's uh, you know you fight and i think that is not just in racing it's also in the industry if you want to do like uh, me doing car products in the industry i want to win all the tests with their products when they are on the market so winning for me is is uh, really important if i am in the competition but mm. it's also if i'm not winning i get the motivation to fight harder to get to the position to win yeah now i know you you've come from obviously probably some of the most competitive sports in the world right world, world rally championships everything actually in motorsport not just even formula one it's such a competitive landscape you live on for me going into you know the paddock being privileged to be that side of the track sometimes seeing how everybody talks to each other really well and there's a camaraderie as such but then when you get to the track side and it's actually down to the competition I've never seen rivalry so big in my life. It's it's incredibly strong. It's also when you've taken those big jobs, Jost, it's very lonely, right? I've obviously done big jobs in my career, ran lots of people. You've ran lots of people. Talk a little bit about that leadership journey around how lonely sometimes at the top and being in these very competitive positions. What's what's that like for you? Yeah, you're right. If you are leading a big organization, they say the higher you get to the top, the lonelier you become. And right. I think this is this is absolutely true and you have to fight it. Um, you, it's clear the higher you get, the more responsibility you have. And you are responsible for all the decisions taken and you're responsible for what your colleagues are doing. And you can't control that every day. And it's not the task of a CEO or managing director to control everybody every day. It's getting everybody in the right mood, getting everybody excited and motivated to do the best possible job. And right. that means you have to form first a team that can follow the ideas and can understand the ideas and you have to set the objectives. Now, only if everybody knows where to work to, they can do a really good job and they have to be aligned with the overall strategy. Um, I think that it's most important that everybody is following. You can set the objectives and everybody goes in the same direction. Yeah. Yeah. Really great lesson. You know, I couldn't really, I can't really have this podcast before we get to the discussion around technology. I couldn't stop by myself by not touching on formula one. It's obviously now one of the world's most watched sports, right? You've come from being the CEO of Williams formula one team to McLaren. You've been around the sport for a very long time. You're also now a Netflix celebrity, which is quite interesting for me talking to you. Um, and then, you know, so tell us a little bit the lens that you have and how you think that sport is changing, sort of where you think Formula One goes from here. Obviously, we can talk about the technology pieces because it is a technology sport. And so it'd be great to get your perspective on that too. But I think it'd be great to see, sort of hear from you about where you think Formula One's headed now in general around where you think sort of the sport will, will end up in the next few years? Because there's been a lot of changes over the last few years too. Yeah, I think you've seen the sport, especially Formula One, has been changing all the time. I'm involved in Formula One since the early 90s and that I've right. seen it over 30 years. But it was in and then I was out again, but I was always connected. 
So I've seen how it is changing. One thing that hasn't changed is the competition, that Formula One is pure competition. Many people say it's just business. It is just all about money. Yes, you have to get the money to run the team. And the more professional you are, the better you can run the team and the more investments you can do into the team, the better engineers you can get. And then, then. but then when you're on track, then it's just pure, pure sports with the engineering team. So the technical director doesn't uh, worry about, he worries about not having enough money, but (laughs) he's not involved in the general business. And so is the race engineers and so are the drivers. So the guys who have to deliver on track have to follow, fully focus on what happens on track and to, be, uh, to become the most competitive on track. What is hmm. uh, you know, all the resources that the company offers have to be used in the most efficient and proper way. Um, and that makes it a pure sport. So there is no balance of performance. So the best team and the best driver <clears throat> with the best car and the best engineer wins. And if they win year after year, then they win year after year. There is no regulation that puts them back to become less competitive like it is in many other uh, motorsports nowadays. And I think there is no will to change this. So that means Formula One will always be highly competitive and uh, in the future as well and will be a proper sport and where technology develops quickly and the teams develop quickly. and. that is the right direction. Also, when you look at the, when new regulations come, the next time <clears throat> it's 2026 with new regulations, especially with new engine regulations as well, where it's a chance for you manufacturers to come in. And then uh, the teams have to focus one to two years ahead on how the car should look like with new regulations, as that's then the chance to catch up for the teams who are not in the front row uh, actually now. And do you and do you think Jost that will happen? I mean, we've obviously seen a massive dominance, obviously last two years with Red Bull. Um, we saw that with Mercedes before Schumacher days with Ferrari, etc. Do you think some of those other teams will get a chance to become up the front of the pack now with some of these new regulations coming in? With the new regulation, there's always a chance. I don't think no. that the teams who are in the back right now can can become dominant then from twenty six as the resources aren't there and the infrastructure isn't there. Even there is the cost cap in place. And I believe the cost cap is absolutely necessary, but it doesn't make the teams equal right away. It will take, I assume, a decade until that will be more balanced as uh, the infrastructure of the big teams is so much bigger and so much more effective and efficient than of the small teams. So that will take a couple of years. But within the top teams, uh, we'll say the top four or five now, there is absolutely the chance to change uh, the hacking order with the new regulations right. in 26. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting, right? Yeah. So F1 obviously is a, you know, we've talked about it before, but big technology uh, sport. Obviously, you know, there's, uh, I think, what, two, 300 IP addresses on a, on a Formula One car collecting data every single lap. And so... When you sort of take this theme of technology, now we see AI everywhere. Apparently, everybody is an AI company now. Um, and that's me being probably sarcastic, but everybody in the world now seems seem to have become an AI company. Obviously, for us at Persona, we've created an AI technology called TrackSwift, where in sports in particular, teams like Formula One teams are using our technology to now make mission-critical decisions in a race for our, with our product. You've seen that in action. 
give us a little bit of your perspective on TrackSwift as a, as a technology that we obviously create for Formula One and how you think that's sort of changing the game a little bit. Yeah, I've seen TrackSwift developing over the last years. You know, when I was at Williams, it just came up and I have seen the idea and I've seen what you were working on. And I've seen that this is a big chance and it is a, it's a great way to become more competitive and to become more, to get, to get to more information about the others. Because so Drag Swift is uh, converting the voice of all the race drivers and their engineering. So all the radio communication between the car and the team is translated, let's say, taken from the voice into the text. And then the team can specially define who should get which text. And there can be keyboards and an end. And the old technology was you have for the 18 other drivers, you have 18 people sitting there over the weekend and just typing what they listen to with the huge, uh, of course, that's uh, the quality of the radio is not good. So it's difficult to understand. And uh, human, there's a lot of mistakes there because it just hears it once and then has to write it down. And um, to automate this and to put that into an AI technology that limits and reduces the, say, the mistakes and the errors by, by nearly all as, as the listening is much better and the system learns from itself. So it gets better and better by itself. And uh, say, especially through last year, having seen the TrackSwift really getting to perfection and making the difference to race results. As people get the information, the right people get the right information from the competitors immediately and then can react immediately. As in Formula One, it's so important to react immediately. So you don't have time to think. If you see what others are doing, then you have to react. And in the past, you had to react when you saw what others are doing. Now with the radio communication and TrackSwift, you know what they are doing before they actually are doing it and you can respond at the same time, before they do something, you can do something. As you know, they're discussing it over radio and you can follow that. And uh, that is a great step forward. And uh, I think the new version coming up this year, even better. I think it's a must for every race team, not just Formula One team, but for every race team that can follow the radio communication of their competitors. Yeah, well, you, you, I, well, you couldn't even say, I can't even say it better than you. I mean, you've really have been a major advocate for us in TrackSwift at Persona. Well, what's so great is your passion and your energy and what we've designed as a technology for not just Formula One, but for motorsports are now moving into potentially in football organizations and other organizations, even potentially the product moving into emergency services where we're helping, you know, first responders in the field. Uh, get information flow much more quicker, much more expedient in their processes that they have to go through. It's a game changer. And so we're really excited about it. And so thank you for, first of all, all the support you give us at Persona with TrackSwift. It's been fantastic. Your input has really made the product, in my view, where it is today. So thank you for, for that, Jost. You know, AI technology in general is increasing. If you look at sports overall, do you see that increasing not just in Formula One but across all sports are you seeing that sort of from your lens around AI technology is becoming more sort of proficient in in what you see in sports today I think the AI will get bigger and bigger in every personal person's life and yeah. it will influence everybody's life and especially in sport where is where is the, the highest competition 
And when you look at Formula One, you have to involve, evolve all the time. And this is where Formula One is known for the high speed of technical development. And AI is at the top of technical developing right now. And it's collecting all the data and taking the decisions based on the data that a human can't do anymore. So I see AI as a tool, not designing the car itself, but used as a tool to improve in all kinds of areas, just collect all the information and uh, put them in a logic way to be able to take decisions. And then, of course, the human has to check, is that the right decisions? But I think as further it will develop, uh, humans will see that AI take the right decision and then just let, let it go and live with that decisions and uh, and focus on different things, focus on even more technical development or or infrastructure development or whatever. So I think this the development speed will be massively improved through AI. And AI may not take the main decisions, but it will take all the decisions that a machine can make and leave the humans the space to be more innovative. Yeah, no, I agree. Do you think, do you think, Jost, in your lens of how you see, particularly Formula One, Formula One's a very regulated sport, right? There are so many regulations. I think the manuals are, you know, 50, 60 pages long on regulations for Formula One from FIA, et cetera. AI is now being sort of talked about globally around the world, around governments, regulating AI companies, making sure that AI is safe. Do you see that also encroaching into sports teams like Formula One, where they may regulate how much AI is in the sport, for example? I believe AI in general has to be regulated, like everything has to be regulated, isn't it? It doesn't, because AI can be very useful, very helpful, but if it is in wrong hands and it can be wrong badly, it can be also be not beneficial for humans. So it can be used in a bad way, like everything. And I don't think regulations can stop that, but there should be a guideline how AI can be used and what uh, where AI develops. And of course, over time, that has to, has to be adjusted. And uh, when we look at Formula One, there's already a regulation of how many data you are allowed to use uh, in your calculations, in your CFD and so on. So I'm sure AI will become part of that. And that, again, it helps the the AI programs and the AI technology because it has to become more and more efficient. Because if you limit the data usage, then the data you use have to be used in the most efficient way. So I think these regulations will push development and not hinder development. Yeah, no, you're right. And things going to be very interesting for us, certainly as an AI company, to see how that progresses because we're already hearing from the work we do in governments that AI is going to get more regulated, et cetera. But it'll be interesting to see if that proliferates more into sports like Formula One. Um, a question for you. So it's interesting, you spent a lot of, most of your career in four-wheeled vehicles and everything else. I've heard that you actually prefer two wheels versus four. And so I heard that you actually have more motorcycles potentially than even cars. Is that, so tell us a little bit about that. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. I started riding motorbikes when I was six years. And at that time, it were not the small motorbikes because they were not around at that time because that's nearly 60 years ago. Uh, So I started learning on sidecars and on big motorbikes. And uh, I got the passion for this and that I raced a couple of years in enduro and in motocross. And uh, I still love the the two-wheelers because they are made for going around corners where four wheels, you have to push 
and force it to a corner and the motorbikes, they just naturally go. So that's why I really enjoy going on motorbikes and, uh, and you can have for one sports car, you can have a couple of motorbikes so right. that you enjoy in different environments. So that's what I really love. Yeah. And I've heard you actually have more motorbikes than cars today, right? You have more motorcycles, I think. Yeah, that's not so difficult because I don't have lots of cars. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Interesting. So you asked a little bit more sort of on the personal side, switch from sort of Formula One, but what would you say has been your sort of biggest career highlight? What's been the, your biggest career highlight for you? Yeah, I think when I look back, there have been a couple that are really memorable, but I think the most that makes me most proud is the win of the truck category of the Perry Ducker in 85 with my father in the truck and my brother and a friend in the second truck as the support team. So just being four people in the team in the Dakar and the Dakar at that time in Africa was 13,000 kilometers in three weeks. Wow. Um, that was really tough. And to be successful and beat the, the factory teams with a complete 100% private team, just having a couple of friends helping to build the car and to prep for doing the preparation and then being just four for three weeks in the desert. Uh, that's great team building. It... Uh, it puts the family re- uh, relationships to the edge, I would say, if you're I'm three sure. weeks with your father in the truck. is not so easy either, either but uh, teaches you a lot of lessons as you have to do all kinds of jobs that are done in a race team by your own and you learn how hard everything is. And then being successful and being on the podium in the Dakar was something uh, I think nothing else could catch up with. Amazing. And you didn't just do it once, right? You did it multiple times, didn't you? Yeah, I did it four times. Four uh, times? One the Toyota wow. Land Cruiser, one for a movie as the stuntman for motorbike. Uh, on the motorbike. <laughs> wow, I didn't know that part. Stuntman. Yeah, you were a stuntman in a movie? Really? Yeah, yeah. It was in a movie. It was in a cinema movie, and that was a very special experience <laughs> as well. So being part of creating a cinema movie and being an actor as well and being a stuntman in that movie was quite was quite interesting. Wow. I knew also, I knew you were sorry, yeah. I knew you were a Netflix star. I just didn't know you were a movie star as well. That's pretty amazing. Uh, that's that's so long ago and it I think the the movie was underrated as it had to be taken all parallel to the Dakar. So that was wow. a story, but it had to be taken every single day during the Dakar. And if something would have failed, the movie would have been dead. So there would not have been a movie. So that was my hardest Dakar was really this, having a team with 20 people and only the the director and me have ever been at the Dakar. And then having 18 people uh, who had to work, like cameraman, then um, truck drivers, we had a helicopter, we had a truck with kerosene, 10 to 10,000 liter kerosene driving through the desert and having that responsibility at the age of, was it 24, was wow. quite was quite big. And it was the toughest Dakar as you had to drive every single kilometer, but you had a, a team you had to stop to take pictures. And at that time, the cameras were in GoPros. <laughs> they were really huge. Right, right, in, yeah, uh, right. That was in 84. So it was really, really huge material. And it needed a lot of work to prepare every every taking and every filming and in the camp and on the way. So it was my toughest Dakar was this. That's amazing. I actually didn't know that. And that's a new fact I've now known about you. 
can um do i can we get to know what the name of the movie was is it still available to go watch you on the stunt bike somewhere yeah i don't find it anywhere i, I tried really? to find it even my kids haven't seen it yet ah, uh, i fun. had a vhs but there is no vhs play around anymore where i can get ah. it uh and it was called rally perry dakar rally perry dakar came to okay. the movies in 85 so because anyone listening today knows that finds Rally Parry Dekar, please let us know. It would be fantastic. Yeah, We'd love to see yes. it. And Jost would definitely like to see it too. Um, Jost, that's great. So let me ask you another question a little bit about your career. And obviously you've been the best at what you do. But in that career, who sort of has influenced you the most, you think, in your, in your time in all of the things that you've been doing in your career? Yeah, there were multiple people on the technical side and also on the management side. Um, and uh, if, as you mentioned before in the introduction, I've been in a couple of places where I experienced a lot of different leaderships. So at the beginning of my career, I wanted to work for Paul Roche, who was the main engine guy who did the Formula what BMW Formula One engine, the Formula Two engine, and I wanted to work for him. For him, so I went to Munich to university, joined the club where where they where all the BMW guys were in and got my diploma work uh, at BMW M. And uh, then during my diploma work, I got employed. So I could, I fought hard, but I finally could work for Paul Roche, what was my big dream. And wow. uh, from there, I went more in the, on the management side and met a couple of really good managers when I worked for Salva Petronas Engineering. Um, and Petronas is a government-owned Malaysian company. And I was really impressed and learned a lot about their leadership. They had a couple of leaders. They were absolutely excellent. It was how they motivated, how they treated people, but also how they set objectives and how they followed that up. And um, um, I learned really good lessons with them. But then I moved on when I was at Ford. It was Louis Booth and it was uh, Martin Leach, who I learned a lot from, were great leaders. Uh, and especially how to treat people, how to build up teams and how to create trust within the team and how to create loyalty, uh, where many people say loyalty is just you give to a company. No, the company has to create that loyalty. So, and then you can trust your people and that is very important. And I learned yeah. that especially with Petronas and with Ford. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great lesson. I totally agree about trust and loyalty and also, I think it's about trying to create not just commitment with people that you work for you, but how do you sort of create this emotional bond with them around uh, managing sort of expectations and everything else? Have you, as you look at your sort of career, et cetera, and how you've managed your own expectations, how is it, how do you sort of manage expectations of sort of the others that you work with, Yoss? How do you sort of lead those people? What's sort of your style around leadership, et cetera, around that? Uh, I think what I learned in my leadership is that you first have to, to expect and uh, more from yourself from than from anybody else you're working with. So you have to be uh, willing to deliver more, to work harder, to, to work long more time. And, and, and so you have to lead by example. And I think that's a, yeah, that's a difference between a leader and a manager. And um, then you have to create the objectives so that everybody knows what is expected and they have to agree to those uh, objectives. And then you can build a team around you that you trust and they trust in you. And you have to be authentic and you have to be 
loyal to your employees as well. Um, and uh, and then you can create objectives that are not just easy, that everybody wants stretch, stretched objectives then and wants to prove that they can fulfill uh, and do that together. But as a leader, you have to take responsibility for the good times and also for the bad times. And I think you have to back up your team and you have to to stand behind your team. And if something goes wrong, then then you take the responsibility and not look at people what's wrong, but look at the processes. Why could something go wrong? I think that was also a main lesson. If something goes wrong, it's not that people want to do a mistake. It's the processes that allow that something goes wrong. And then you have to fix the processes and not the people. Yeah, no, well said, well said. And I think you're right. There's a lot of lessons, obviously, in leadership we all can take from, you know, your career is obviously massive and you've seen many different ways to lead and motivate people now that you're sort of like well i don't really believe actually you're in completely retirement but now that you're in retirement what do you, what is your passion now what sort of inspires you as you get out of bed each day what's sort of your inspirations of what you're looking for now in this next sort of phase of your life as such uh, what really what really inspires me is to support young and small startups and I love to be at the forefront of technology, been that all my life. And I love working with people and I love networking. And I see a lot of opportunities with the startups. If to bring the startups together with other areas of the industry, with other people, and then see that it works and see that there are relationships created, opportunities created, new technology created. I'm still really excited about that. And uh, I think that what I can do now without running a company, not being responsible for day-to-day -day work of an 800 or 1,000 people company where you have all kind of HR issues, finance issues, and, and, and. so I can focus on what I believe I'm really good at, at uh, bringing people together and enjoying the development of new technologies. Um, and also spent more time on the motorbikes. As you mentioned, I have right, a car, right. so I couldn't ride them recently in the recent years because I've been too busy in the job. But now I can do this and still um, bend, uh, improve um, technology and, and uh, we'll say establish new business relationships. Yeah, that's great. So you can have your passions on what you like with startups and technology. And obviously enjoy your life more now riding motorcycles and things that really inspire you every day, which is fantastic. My last question, uh, Jost, is, you know, you've learned a lot in your career and in your life. What is it that you value the most and what is it you value the least? I think the most I value is the relationships I created. And, you know, I'm still good friends with many guys at Porsche where I've been 30 years ago and at Ford and wherever I have been, I still have really good friends and these created friendships over, over decades and they never stop. So that makes me really proud. I think that's what I really appreciated through all my career. And the least is, well, and, so, and I never look back. So I only remember the good, the good things and learn from the good things and never look back not doing anything what I have done, try to do this again, because there's so much more to do. Um, with, the, with the less, uh, I really don't know because I don't remember them. <laughs> I take them out of my memories.
<laughs> yeah, right, right. No, that's great. Well, listen, Jost, it's been amazing to talk to you. I've learned a lot more. I didn't even know today that you were a stunt actor in a movie, so that's a new one for me. I can't thank you enough for the support you give us, obviously, at Persona Every Day, uh, and the inspiration and the passion you have sort of working with us every day. It's fantastic. Thank you for joining me on our first podcast. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. You're definitely an inspiration to many. It's been fantastic to talk to you. So thank you so much for joining. Yeah, thank you, Adrian. Really an honor for me to be in your first podcast. And I'm really excited about our future together at Persona to bring this technology up and uh, and improve the technology for all kinds of sports teams, but also on the, we'll say, the emergency services. I believe this software can save lives uh, even in a short term. And that makes me really proud. And I'm pushing hard, supporting you to get there. So right. thank you, thank you much, so much Josh. for listening to Thank you so much. And thanks to everybody for listening today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. See you soon, Jost. Thanks, Adrian. See you soon. Thanks to you all for listening today. Please remember to subscribe to our Perspectives channel. We have many more guests to come. So stay tuned for more. See you soon.